Good morning. Um, you all come on in as, uh, uh, as you get a chance. Does anybody take the New York Times, this uh, liberal rag of a newspaper? <laughs> we do. <laughs> but I'm a trial lawyer. What do you expect? Uh, uh, do, does, uh, okay. We're going to talk about the New York Times a little bit this morning. Um, um, but I want to give everybody a chance to come on in. And uh, if you need a lesson, raise your hands. We've got some lessons. We've got a need down here behind uh, the housers. Oh, you, you're all right? Okay. Um, you need one? Okay, we're all right. Maybe a little down here. Um, we are in church history in this class, if you're visiting, and uh, uh, we are in the 500s uh, as we chart through church history. This morning, we're going to, to go into a, a, we're going to review the monastic movement a little bit. And I want to start out with a passage of Scripture the parable of the sower. I'm going to borrow Vincent Van Gogh's painting of the sower. And uh, 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 you will recall that Jesus told the parable of the sower. And in the parable, there is a man who's got seed and he's walking around and he's broadcasting or he's sowing or he's spreading out the seed so that uh, 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 he can grow his crops. When he does it, the seed lands in one of four places, as Jesus tells the story. The first place the seed lands is uh, where in a path and the birds come quickly and just devour and eat up that seed before it has a chance to even sprout. The second type of uh, area where the seed lands is, is in a rocky area where there's not enough soil for the roots to go down deep. And so that seed sprouts very quickly. But without enough roots, when the sun comes out, there, there's not any depth for, for moisture and for life. And so those plants quickly uh, wither and die. Then there is a third set of seed that falls in an area that, that's already got a lot of weeds in it. It's got a lot of thorny problems and, and uh, uh, the thorns grow up and kind of choke out enough of the, the, the seed growth to where the seed doesn't really bear any fruit. And then there's a fourth area where the seed foil falls into good soil. And in that good soil, the seed does real well. And it bears fruit a hundredfold. It multiplies. Now, after Jesus gives his parables, his apostles say to him, his disciples say, uh, what, what, what did that mean? Why did you tell us that story? Jesus says, well, this is the way it is with the church, the way it is with the kingdom of God. And the word is the seed, and the word gets spread out. And sometimes the word foil, falls on a, a path, and, and it doesn't bear any fruit. The birds come and eat it because it falls on unbelieving ears. And then sometimes some people hear it and they receive it, but they don't have, they, they never grow the roots. They never put down anything so that when the sun comes out, their plant doesn't withstand the, the sun. And then there are some who hear it, but they're so choked up. So the, 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 the growth is so choked out by their, their worries of the world or by their, their concerns for wealth and trying to get money and things like that, that, that the, the, the seed never really grows to fruit. It never bears its, its uh, fruit. And then the fourth are those with the right soil who hear the Word, and they honor the Word, and they care about the Word, and they grow and they bear fruit. It's a pretty good story. 
And when we hear it, it makes sense that that's the way the church was and and the apostles that Jesus is talking to and the message that Jesus had. You can read the New Testament and see it falling on different types of people like the four soils, right? We can see the same thing here today in our day and age because the church is the same way. And sometimes, I mean, you go to a school. You, you could go to uh, and talk to kids. You'll see it happen that way. You can have kids out at the, the, the Angel Tree Camp. You can see those that are the, the rich soil that are ready to receive it and then other people that just aren't. But it didn't just apply in the New Testament and it doesn't just apply today. That parable Jesus told is applicable during church history. And we see it. It's a wonderful parable to help us understand what the church was going through and what in the name of Christianity was happening during the time period I want us to survey a bit today. So we're going to take it out of a field and instead we're going to put it in ancient Rome and the demise of the Roman Empire as the Roman Empire is falling apart. And we're going to see that what happened is a lot of people would hear Christianity. They would profess Christianity. They would say, I am a Christian, but their lives didn't any more show Christianity than the man in the moon. Their lives didn't bear fruit. The fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control was far from these people. You had boatloads of people who were professing Christianity while living lives of rampant sin. Okay? And and, and there was a response to a lot of Christians within that time frame of, you know, if that's the church, I don't want to be part of it. If that's Christianity, please exempt me. Because that's not what Christianity should be about. And we have a rise within church history of what is called monasticism. Now we're going to go to the chalkboard here. Monasticism. For you young people, do you know what that means? Monastics? Okay. Monks and nuns. That's for you. Monasticism. We're talking monks and nuns. All right. They didn't use those words as much, although they started. Uh, uh, monokos means to live alone in Greek, and that's what we get monk from. Nonos is uh, 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 to be holy and chaste, and that's what we get nun from. Um, but monks and nuns. And so we're going to look at this movement of monks and nuns, or monasticism, in the church. When we look at it, we're going to do it with two different things. And uh, the younger people in here, uh, uh, you got to really buzz in on these because these are like big words, but I couldn't figure out how to make them smaller right now. We want to look at the secularization of the church. I'm going to explain it, so don't lose track. And we're going to look at the rise of monasticism, how monks and nuns really got started. That's the lesson for today. Next week, we're going to really plug in to like one of the major guys in the monk movement, a guy named St. Benedict. And he set up a bunch of rules, and we'll do him next week. But this week, we're going to do this. Let's start talking with this first thing, secularization. It's a big word. What do we mean by it? Secularization of the church. What is secular? 
worldly. That's right. So if we've got the church and we got the world, when we talk about the church becoming secularized or the secularization of the church, we're talking about when the church, really with Constantine in a, in a huge way, when the church became a very worldly, a part of the world culture. It was no longer kind of a little closed club. It was an in-group and an in-place to be. It's where the church kind of starts taking on a, a, a bit of the world and the world's culture. I tried to figure out how to show it. That is about as good as I could come. Can you kind of see the church there in the world? And you can kind of see the world there in the church? That's a picture of secularization. Yeah, bring the lights down. See, that's secular. We'll do it again. The church gets secularized. It becomes part of, yeah, it becomes part of the world. It becomes secular. Now, when we look at what happens when the church goes mainstream, if you will, it has an effect on the world and it has an effect on the church. Historically, when the church goes mainstream, when it becomes secularized, when it becomes part of the world's culture, when it becomes ultimately the official religion of the Roman Empire, it has an effect on the world, it also has an effect on the church. When we look at the effect it has on the world, i got to tell you, the effect on the world, some of it is thumbs up. Some of the world effect is really good. The church becoming mainstream is good for our culture in some ways. The effect on the world of the church becoming mainstream, though, is also bad in some. And so I want us to focus on these. I think we need to see how the world and the church integrating has an effect on each other. It also affects the church when the church becomes so worldly. And the effect for the church, just like the effect for the world, is both thumbs up and thumbs down. We'll see both. So that's what we're looking at. Let's start by looking at where a secular church, where the church becoming mainstream, where the church becoming authoritative, becoming part of culture, let's look at the benefits it brought to the world. Um, first of all, and a lot of these happen with Constantine, Constantine, if you need to, go back and get our lessons. You can get them off the Internet. But we did spent several weeks on Constantine. Constantine was the first emperor who, instead of persecuting the church, became a Christian in essence and uh, uh, set the church up for uh, uh, something. Constantine is, is the first one who made Sunday a legal holiday. And the reason he did it is so that people would have the day to worship God. The entire world got the benefit, almost. He wouldn't let, he said, uh, nobody's allowed to work on Sundays because we honor Jesus and it's a day of prayer and a day of honoring his resurrection and a day of worship. He said, however, uh, farmers, uh, you're allowed to work because you've got to like get the crops in and when it's time, it's time. And so farmers and, and people who worked vineyards because they got to have the wine. So when it's time, it's time. And, and days count in both of those occupations. But outside of that, basically everything else, business shut down on Sundays. Never happened before. This is an effect that the church becoming secular had on the world. Make sense? Okay. Here's another one for you. 
People are seen as equals. I put it up here. And then I put, well, kind of, sort of, a little bit. Anyway, maybe. All right, here's why. Before Christianity starts taking the world by storm, the concept among people in the world was that every different tribe, nation, group of people was different than others. And, and so, for example, communities would think that they had their own God for that community and for that tribe and for that group of people. And if you were of a different tribe or a different group of people, you were inferior. You weren't the same. You weren't equal. You weren't allowed equal rights. In Roman courts, you, or if you're not a Roman citizen, you don't have the rights of a Roman the rights don't come to you just because you're a human. Humans are different. There are races and creeds and cultures of people, so the mindset was, that are entirely inferior. Mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Not worthy of being counted as the same species, if you will. That was a mentality that existed until the church becomes secular and the church so influences the world that people start seeing that everyone is made in God's image and everyone is descended from the creation of Adam and Eve. And so it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what, what, what part of the world you live in. It doesn't matter what your genetic stock is. It doesn't matter what your education is. Everyone is seen as an equal. Now, I put, well, kind of anyway on there because this was a long time coming. In fact, we still struggle with this in Christian America to some degree. But you definitely saw it starting in, in, as the church became... It is the church that set that up. That is why you can go to other cultures that do not have Christianity as the basis of their culture, and you can have an entirely different mindset. You can go to Islamic cultures that truly do view other aspects of humanity as separate and distinct from their own. They, the, the, you, you can go to some um, Eastern cultures... That, that just don't view the world as all, have, all people having the same value. That is a peculiarly Christian and Judeo-Christian concept. And it's one that uh, uh, was there. And so, for example, also because of that, it applied to women. As the church became secular, women got new rights. Constantine gave a vast array of rights to women that came about because of the Christian faith. We go back and we read Paul to try and figure out, are women allowed to do this and this and this in the church? Some people say that Paul and Christ were, were you know, uh, 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 what's it called? Uh, something pigs. What's it? Chauvinists. Male chauvinist pigs. MCPs. They weren't. Actually, it was a radical advancement for women compared to the mentality of the world then. Paul and Jesus, if anything, were feminists. 
What are we doing? My mic's breaking up. That's hard to do, according to the song. Breaking up is hard to do. I mean, it was, it was a, uh, 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 it was a huge deal. The rights that women got. Let me give you some example. Until Constantine allowed it, women couldn't own property. Women were property. You see the difference? Women were property. It was Constantine influenced by Jesus. What do we need? This is family. Y'all just walk up here. I don't care. There you go. Um, it is Constantine who said, women aren't property. They were made. I mean, you read the creation account. You read what Paul has to say about husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. I mean, he died for the church. That, that is a position of great esteem. You consider the way the church was venerating at this time already, and we'll cover this in another class. Mary, though, the mother of Jesus. Women, it was the church that brought value to women that caused the state to change it. Dressing codes. Until Constantine passed the law, if a woman wasn't dressed suitably, she could be called in front of the town council and punished. And it was Constantine who said, the town council has no right to declare what a woman should dress and what she shouldn't. That's between the woman and God. Um, the rape laws that we still have today were by and large put into effect by Constantine. It was Constantine that put the death penalty in if you raped a virgin or if you raped a nun. Rape was not that bad of a crime until him, but it was Constantine who said, no, because of the Bible, this is what we need to do. Women actually got some custody rights and guardianship rights over children because of Constantine. Before that, women had no right to, to custody of children. Children got a few new rights under Constantine. As bizarre as it sounds, until Constantine passed the law or enacted the law, he doesn't really pass it. I mean, he's like the emperor. He declares it. Until Constantine declared the law... Fathers could chill, kill their newborns. Infanticide was legal until Constantine said, this is not Christian. No more killing of babies. When the Supreme Court passed Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court went back to Roman law pre-Constantine, which allowed abortion, and said it's part of our civilization's history. But it was Constantine who said the influence of the church changes the way we view these laws. And so it wasn't until the 300s that infanticide became illegal. Now, it wasn't a perfect... Constantine didn't put it all in a nice bow that we're going to love as a Christmas gift because he still made it legal for fathers to abandon their children. You could leave the newborn out on the street. You could sell the newborn into slave, but you weren't entitled to kill him anymore. Gladiator fighting laws changed because of the church. Yeah, that's Russell Crowe. A lot of y'all think that's Louis Miori. It's not. <laughs> Little more hair on Russell Crowe. Other than that, it's pretty much a spitting image. 
Um, gladiator fighting was the form of entertainment. This is pre-TV. Abner Doubleday has not invented baseball. Basketball is not known. They don't even know cricket yet. And they, they've got no baseball, football. I, their entertainment outside of theater were gladiator fights. Christianity tried to weigh in. Constantine didn't change this. This doesn't change until Honorius does in 404. And the reason it finally changes, which is kind of interesting to think of this in terms of the sermon this morning, that in some ways what I say is kind of a little bit at odds, but we had not planned what we were saying together. So you'll have to accept that in the Lord, different people may see things differently. Um, but I will tell you, there was a monk named Telemachus who felt it so important to stop gladiator battles that he climbed over the railing into the ring and said, please stop your fighting. And the gladiators tore him apart limb by limb and killed him. And he died willingly. But because Telemachus did that, Honorius woke up and said, and the crowd said, okay, a monk just like got wiped out, killed dead here. Um, we need to change this. And Honorius passed the law that said gladiator fights can no longer be with men killing men. You can still kill animals. That form of entertainment continues. But no longer men killing men. By the way, gladiator fights killing animals is still allowed. Right? That's exactly right. That's the heritage of bullfighting. Bullfighting is what's left of the gladiator fights as history is unfolded. Um, now, that's where you see the church had a good effect on culture and on the world. Um, let me tell you how it was advantageous. I'm not going to use the word good. Yeah, that's easier for me if that's okay. I'm not going to use the word good. But I will say it was advantageous. I'm a mic stand. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Um, I will tell you that uh, uh, it was advantageous for the church. The church got what we would call corporate status. Did anybody know what corporate means? Your Latin son's not here. Ultimate? No, but that's close. Oh, all together? Yes, sort of. Body. Corpus Christi is the body of Christ in Latin. Corporal is bodily. Corporal punishments, punishing the body. Corporate is altogether in a body sense. So a corporation is where you take a business and you give it a body for purposes of the law. If you were to try a lawsuit and you represent a corporation, under the law you represent a person even though it's not a real person, a corporation. The church got status. Until Constantine, the church was never considered a corporate entity. The church was just basically a loose collection of people. It was Constantine who said, we will recognize the church, and all of a sudden churches start becoming buildings. 
as opposed to a common group. But we will recognize the church as a corporate entity, and when it's a corporate entity, now the church can own property. Until the, the church is a person, until the church is a corporate entity, it can't own property. But not only does it get to own property, not only does Constantine do that, Constantine starts giving loads of property. He builds the first St. Peter's Basilica, where the Vatican St. Peter's is now. That's the second run at St. Peter's Basilica. The first one was built, though, by Constantine. He gave the Lateran Palace to the church. He, gave, he built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Israel. He built countless churches in Constantinople and in the Holy Lands. The Church of the Nativity. These are properties that were given to the church. The reason this church has this building under the governmental laws and can even hold it is because of what Constantine did initially. And we've just inherited that through our legal structure. Not only did the church get corporate status, but clergy got special treatment as well. The clergy got exemption from income taxes. You don't get that anymore, do you, Lewis? you got to pay taxes. You know why? Because a bunch of rich people saw it as a great tax dodge. See, things weren't that different 16, 1700 years ago. All of a sudden, the clergy get tax-free status and don't have to pay taxes. And you got a whole bunch of rich people who decided that they, they had a calling from the Lord to be clergy. And so Constantine repealed that a few years later when it was obvious it was being used as a tax dodge. They got a military exemption. Didn't have to serve in the military if they were in the clergy. And, and some of these positives, like that tax thing, were also negatives. Let me tell you why. The church owns property. Do you know what effect that had on the general attendance at church? Oh, attendance might be fine. But why do we need to tithe when the church already has all this money? And tithing went way down. Why do we need to give to the church? The church has... Look at this, man. I live in a shack. And this is here. Uh-oh. Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't... Look at these opulent candlesticks and I'm living by the nub of why, why should I tithe? Tithing takes a big hit. Opulence itself has an effect on the church. The church gets all of this wealth and there are church, you know, the guys that we focused on and gals we focused on in this class are what I consider uh, uh, the really good ones. I've left out a lot of the ones that would make you want to gag. Because for all of the ones that are taking, coming into the John Chrysostom's that are coming into the church and selling all of the gold and finery so that they can feed the poor and take care of the sick and take care of the, the angel tree kids and to do that kind of stuff. For all of the guys that are doing it right, there were a bunch that were just loving being in the clergy and having gold service and having cooks and having all of this wonderful, you know, they're just think there's something on a stick. Uh, the special treatment for the clergy, I already referenced. There are a lot of people who, uh, 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 as Augustine said, or Augustine said, they, got, they received a call of money, not a call of God. And they went into the clergy because 
The calling wasn't a calling of service. See, I go back to Lewis is an example of mine, and he gets embarrassed that I do this, but I know what he does for a living. And I know he could make three times the money doing the exact same thing if he did it outside the church building than he does inside the church building. And he's not here because he's not good enough to be on the outside. He's as good at what he does as anybody I know. He does this because it's his calling from God. His calling from God's not out there to make the money. His calling from God is to minister to this congregation through his counseling skills and gifts. That's the right. But there were a lot of people doing it on the wrong. What happened is the professors greatly increased in number. That's the wrong picture. I don't mean college professors. I mean people who say one thing but live another. They profess with their mouth but deny with their heart and lives. There were a lot of people really good at saying they were Christians that probably won't, weren't. There were the socials. It was the social thing to do to go to church and to be a Christian. doesn't have squat to do with whether or not your heart's in a relationship with the creator of the world. It's the right thing. It's the right way to raise a kid. People in it for that. Isn't that shocking that that was going on? Soldiers. Doesn't matter what. Constantine passed the law. Every Sunday, every soldier was required to kneel and pray the following. You alone we know is God. You are the king we acknowledge. You are the help we summon. By you we have overcome our enemies. To you we render thanks for the good things past. You also, we hope, for as giver of those to come. It's a wonderful prayer. But you've got a bunch of pagan people who've never asked Jesus into their heart and never thought about it, who are required to pray it as part of their military duty. And it sure does breed empty formalism... That means like saying your prayers at night in the same way over and over because you're not really thinking about it. You're just used to praying. Throw this in for kids and those of us who are kids at heart. The prayer didn't end there. You can tell Constantine wrote this prayer for his military. They had this memorized. They said this every Sunday. Get a load of the rest of it. This is pretty good if you're Constantine. To you we all come to supplicate for our emperor Constantine. And for his God-beloved sons, that he may be kept safe and victorious for us in long, long life. We plead. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, that's secularization of the church, and that's what it did. Let's talk about the rise of monasticism for a minute. Because what happened is, while the church becomes secularized and in some ways watered down and in some ways pathetic... There was a strong movement in the church of people who felt a call to holiness that caused them to separate out from the church. This is the rise of monasticism. We studied this some with St. Anthony. 
He's the father of monasticism. You can go back and pull that lesson off the internet. St. Antony of Egypt is the guy, just an absolutely impressive man for some of the things that he did. But uh, as monasticism rose, you got lots more monks coming after him. People living alone. People who were monks. And what happened is, over time, these monks, instead of all living in isolation, started sort of living together, sharing their monkness, if you will. And those are what you call monkasteries or monasteries. It comes from the same Greek word. Or cloisters, which is from the Latin word for it. And so this is what you have. And you not only have it with men, you have it also with women. <laughs> now this was going to be a lot funnier if I could have figured out how to make her fly over the screen. Then I was going to tell you uh, she won't stand still, so we'll have to replace her. And uh, we would have. But uh, I couldn't figure out how to make her fly. Sorry. What were these monks thinking? What were they doing? Let's move through this. Their purpose was to grow in loving God, by and large. But I'm overgeneralizing. There were a bunch of them, I'm convinced, that may have just been nutty as the Mad Hatter. Okay? I think there were also some of them who were into this for show's sake. And I got to tell you, I don't care what aspect, I don't care how holy you are. If you don't have the love of God in your heart, your holiness is an empty formalism, as Paul would say. It's a question of do you love God, first and foremost. Is the, the only thing that matters in your deeds is whether or not they're proceeding from the love of Christ. And the only reason we love Him is because He first loved us. It all goes back to Him. But these folks, by and large, their purpose, express purpose, was to grow in loving God. They would take the passage out of 1 John. Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, doesn't come from the Father. These people then would take vows of poverty. They would take a vow not to have things, to live in poverty. They would use passages like Luke 6.20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. They would take the parable of the rich young ruler where Jesus says to him, as, as it's in Mark 10.21, One thing you lack... Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And this is what they would do. This vow of poverty would not just be a vow of poverty from money. It would be a vow of poverty from their family. They would isolate from their family. They would use the passages like Matthew 10, 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me isn't worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And they wanted to be worthy. The, the worldliness of the church they found repugnant and sickening. And so they said, we will live differently. We will live a holier life out of love to God. And this is what they did. They would take a vow of chastity. They would take passages like 1 Corinthians 7. Are you unmarried, Paul writes? Don't look for a wife. About virgins, I think it's good for you to remain as you are. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 8, he said, or, or, um, that's the same thing. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 8, he says the same thing. Because of the crisis. Now, 
Protestants, we have a, a, a very different perspective on why Paul's writing that. And go back to the biblical literacy class and look at the First Corinthians lesson. I think I covered it. If not, then email me if you've got questions. But these were the passages that, that, that the, the monks would use and the nuns would use for chastity. They would take vows of obedience, to be obedient to the abbot or the abbess. Abbot coming from the Syriac for father, and ab, like the Aramaic Abba, abbess for a mother. And that would be who would be in charge of the monastery. Now, many of these hermits were impressive. Many of these hermits were bizarre. Originally, the hermits from the Greek erimites means to live alone. The hermits would live alone and then over time they started coming together in the cloisters or the monasteries and living together. But uh, some of them were bizarre. You can remember St. Anthony. We talked about him, Anthony, and go look at his stuff. There was a guy named St. Paul the Simple. St. Paul the Simple had 300 rocks he kept with him. I guess it was the equivalent of uh, like a third century rosary and family rolled into one. Um, and what he would do is every day he would like move the rocks from one place to another each time he said a prayer because his goal was to say 300 prayers in a day. Now that sounds wonderful, but then when you hear the story that he heard about somebody who prayed 700 times a day, he got very discouraged because he thought he wasn't holy enough. And so you just cry for these people because you just think the simplicity and beauty and joy of the gospel, they missed it in so many ways. And yet you're also pretty blown away that the guys there wanting to... Pray 300 times a day. Now, to the credit of an otherwise hermit he went to, who he said, gee, am I that horrible? I'm only praying 300 times a day. Do I need to go find another 400 rocks? <laughs> the hermit he went to said, actually, if you'll say 100 prayers and mean them, that's better than the 300 you're probably doing right now. I'd get rid of some of the rocks. There's another guy named St. Simeon the Stylite. This guy was really something else. Stylite, not because he dressed like Louis Miori. <laughs> Comes from stile, which is the, the, the Greek word for pillar. This guy got so repulsed by everything around him, he just went out and, and climbed up on a pillar. His first one was nine feet tall. It, had a, it was about three feet in diameter. It had a railing. It wasn't big enough for him to lay down on. He lived on it. Lived on it. Not like, oh, gee, I think I'll go down now. I have to use the restroom. He lived on it. Not like, ooh, lunchtime. i got to get to Whataburger. I'll be back. Y'all hold my pillar. He lived on it. He'd eat once a day or once a week. He wouldn't eat during Lent 40 days. For 26 years, he didn't eat that 40-day stretch, people would come to him. They'd bring him food. He'd preach two sermons a day. He converted thousands of people. Because I think everybody wanted to go see who the oddball was out on the pillar. And his disciples built him more pillars because they said, surely you're growing in holiness. You should be higher than nine feet now. You're a little closer to God. Ultimately, he gets to somewhere around 30 feet or so. You can go over to Syria if you don't care about getting killed today and you can see the remains at the church that they built in his honor of one of his pillars. How about Macarius the Elder? See these three guys in the icon? See that guy that looks really bizarre and fuzzy? Him right there? That's him. 
This guy was wigged out. I mean, I say this with respect. He's dead and he's probably a lot holier than I'll ever be in terms of his life. But he felt really guilty that he killed a gnat indiscriminately. And thought what he needed to do for penance is strip naked and lie in the desert for six months. And let all the gnats that want to sting him. It did not leave him looking good in the icon pictures. Now, over time, these hermits started their cloisters. They started coming and living together. There was an Egyptian guy named Picomius who got things organized. We're about out of time. I'm almost done, so don't worry. Picomius gets things organized. I'll pick up and explain to you how next week. But he starts getting... I mean, Picomius gets upset because he says, Look, a bunch of you monks aren't doing anything. You're just sitting around saying you're being contemplative. And this is the, the origination. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. He said, you want to be a monk? Fine. You work your tail off. You make things. You do labor. You farm. You build mats. You build hats. You sell them. And you give all the money to the poor. I mean, it's... it's, uh, it's, it's uh, but he kind of organizes them on a military basis. So... That covers our chalkboard for today. Next week, we're going to look at St. Benedict and his rule. Here are your points for home. And I want to spend just a moment and talk about them. Point number one, balance. I think the hardest thing in a Christian's life is to find balance. It is so hard to be in the world but not be of the world. It is so hard to enjoy the wonderful things God's given us but, and, and, and live with an enjoyment of them, but not live for them, not be captivated. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to enjoy a nice meal. I don't think God's calling everybody not to eat good food. If you've got it, be thankful you've got it and pray for the people who don't. But by the same token, Paul writes in Philippians about people whose God is their appetite, who are living for the good food, who are greedy, who are overindulgent. Who, who live to sate their own appetite, who aren't taking time out before the meal and not just praying for those who don't have food, but trying to figure out how to use some of our bounty to help those who don't have food. It is, it is a difficult thing to do to find balance. How can you enjoy the blessings God wants to give you, a life full of joy and abundance and peace, and yet... Recognize that it's as hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven as it is a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that Jesus wasn't just making an illustrative point when he would tell people to put him first before they put their, their homes, before they put their own lives. So I want us to pay attention to God. There is just a great tendency in our Christian culture today to be self-centered and to think, what is it I can do for me? You know, oh, this bothers me. I need God. Why? Because I'm upset and I want Him to fix it. I don't like to be upset. I mean, even our need for God is self-centered. Well, tell me what to do on this so I can get out of this problem because I don't want to be in this problem. Do you see the difference between the self-centeredness of that and saying, God, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do with my money, with my opportunities, with my friends, with my time? Because I challenge you on number three, 
find a way to sacrifice for others that are less fortunate. We're going to have the angel tree people up here after class. That's next Saturday. You got an ability next Saturday to minister to those children that are less fortunate, certainly than mine are. You've got wonderful opportunities in your life to try and help people that are less fortunate. Compassion International is a wonderful Christian ministry that takes people in lesser developed countries and gives children food, teaching, and clothing. And the money really goes and it really does it. And you get to write letters to the kids and they write you letters. We've got a ministry here through the church that takes clothes and gives it to the people who need it, that gives food. The Houston Food Bank and others that pass food around to people. There are wonderful opportunities. And I invite everybody in here to prayerfully ask God, where can I make a sacrifice in my life that may help some less fortunate? I'm not calling you to be a monk, but I am calling you to take seriously the idea of finding balance. Does that make sense? God, would you please bless us today and speak to people where they need to be spoken to. In Jesus, I pray, amen. Thank you all. I'll see you next week.